Please turn in God's Word to Proverbs 6 and 7, and then we'll turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to the explanation of the Seventh Commandment. Book of Proverbs written to a son, a young man, as a father lovingly instructs him in wisdom that will preserve his life. The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery, and it's God's hedge around a marriage to protect it. It's also, as we'll read in the Heidelberg Catechism, a calling, whether married or single, to live a pure and a chaste life. And so the seventh commandment applies to every single one of us, whether married or single. And it's the word of our Lord. In Proverbs 6, we have words that instruct about that. And then we have a scene of seduction dramatized to warn a son against it. Proverbs 6, we begin reading at verse 20. Proverbs 6, 20, God's word. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals, and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may, give, he may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury, and therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. 
So she caught him and kissed him. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. God's holy word. Let's take out the Forms and Prayers book and turn to page 248. Page 248 in the smaller Forms and Prayers book. Proverbs is not implying, of course, in any way that it's only a woman who could be a seductress. Many men have been seducers. It's not simply men who fall to seduction, but women too. But it's the warning as he speaks to his son. And so speaks in those terms, but as we see now, this commandment applies to each and every one of us. Lord's Day 41, question 108, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Answer, that God condemns all unchastity, and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly, and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. And then, does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery, Answer, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. Let's ask for God's help in prayer. Shall we pray? O holy God, our loving Father, as we come to a subject matter that is potent and that is delicate, we pray that you would guide us as your people. For, Father, you know the place in which you've placed us. You know the need of the hour. You know, Lord, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you minister to us your word, that you grant us conviction of sin and a commitment to purity, and that you would be glorified in us, body and soul. In Jesus' name, we ask for your help. Hear us, Father. Amen. Well, saints of the Lord, it's obvious to each and every one of us that we live in a culture that has shredded the seventh commandment. Sexual disobedience is simply everywhere. Undressed bodies are posted on billboards and in magazines. They're Taking the stage at halftime shows, they're found in 
celebrated in music and in movies, and some say that 60% of the internet traffic is taken up with sexual immorality. So our culture is exposed and experimenting and accepting and addicted. And we, as the people of the Lord in the culture, are not immune. We face a constant bombardment of a culture awash in sexuality. One writer asks, is there any command more ridiculed in our culture than the seventh commandment? Adultery is a joke. Homosexuality is a right. Sex before marriage is the norm. No-fault divorce is assumed. This is the world we live in. Come to the seventh commandment. It's a commandment from God. But in order to, to take hold of this command, we have to remember, I think, three things about our God. Number one, he's holy. He is God. He, he is the eternal God. He doesn't change with shifting cultures. He doesn't change his mind about what the standard of righteousness is. He's God. And the seventh commandment is unmoved because God is unmoving. It, it is a revelation of his righteousness. And so God is serious. When he says that those who willfully live in sin, including sexual immoral sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But secondly, we must remember that God is a saving God. The Lord God who gave the seventh commandment to his people out Mount Sinai was the God who said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage. I have freed you. And so I'm the Lord God who rejoices in your redemption, who gave you salvation. He set Israel free from Pharaoh's bondage, and he set us free from sin and Satan by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's the God who parted a Red Sea. And therefore today, no matter how great our temptations are, we may hear the one speaking to us, the seventh commandment, and know the one who calls me to this is able to give me this purity. He parted a Red Sea. He can bring me out of this addiction. But thirdly, not only is he a holy God, not only is he a loving God, or a saving God, but he's thirdly a loving God. And we must hear this commandment as the voice of a loving God, the father who's addressing his son and pleading with him, I would keep you from all this sorrow and shame and heartache. Listen to my word. Because the law God gives is a protection. Sadly, our culture is full of parents who, who are not watching over their children, who, who are speaking lies to them, who are uninvolved otherwise in their lives, who are giving them passiveness or false teaching that invites their children to go down all these immoral ways. And by that, they sell the souls of their children to slavery, into lust and brokenness and a fruitless quest for satisfaction. But our Father loves us. And so the seventh commandment is his, his word of care and protection by which he says, I would keep you, I would preserve you in this freedom I have won for you through Jesus. So as you hear God's law this morning, remember that. He's a holy God. He's a saving God with mighty power to save. And he's a loving father who truly wants the best for his children and for the glory of his name. So let's hear the Lord's call to fight the good fight of sexual purity this morning as we look at the seventh commandment. And I'd like to consider seven truths about the seventh commandment or seven truths embodied in the seventh commandment this morning. Find it on the paper there in your bulletin if you're wanting to follow. If you're trying to take notes, well, I 
I did a lot of the work for you so you can listen easier. Seven truths. Number one, God happily created intimacy. God happily created marital intimacy. The seventh commandment protects what is good. When God says, not this, God is saying, yes, this. That's how our God works. It was his wise and happy design to make two sexes, male and female. It was God's beautiful plan to make the woman for the man, to bring the woman to the man, and to unite the man and the woman in a lifelong bond of marriage. God rejoiced to do all of that. He rejoiced to do all of that. So sexual intimacy was given by God, created by God, and given as a gift to his people. It's God's design, and God has told us how the design goes. One man and one woman in a lifelong, exclusive bond, their marital intimacy may be enjoyed for the glory of God and for the good of the marriage. Not one man and two women. Not one man and one woman outside the bond of marriage. Not one man and one man. God forbids clearly in Scripture homosexuality and no political decisions or Supreme Court decisions will change God's mind. God has invented sexual intimacy, not Hollywood, not Nashville. God, the designer, has given the gift to his people, and he's given it good. And if you have forgotten that, then go read Proverbs 5, about the delight of husband and wife together, or read the Song of Solomon and see a God who is not squeamish about sexual delight but holds it up in his word. Now, the pleasure God has given is made for the purpose of strengthening the marriage relationship. The mutually shared intimacy heightens the sense of husband and wife that they belong together, that they need each other, they complete each other, and it's a gift to have one another. Sexual intimacy is good in the context of marriage for the marriage bond. And isn't it also amazing that God has appointed that children should come into this world by means of that intimate union, that that intimate union of husband and wife is both the means of conception and the context of their entry into the world of a husband and wife united together in love, the closest of love. What an amazing thing. That God has designed that human life should begin from a faithful union of love. God created us, sexual beings. Now, sin has corrupted everything, we know. We are selfish, and proud, and lustful, and therefore this glorious gift faces attack. And that's why we have the seventh commandment, which warns us that fire out of place is highly destructive. Our second truth this morning, fire out of its place is highly destructive. Fire in a fireplace has throughout centuries warmed many homes, made them cozy, have been the gathering place of, of joyful families. But fire out of the fireplace has burned down many homes. We have some friends who, who had a wood stove, and they, they had a fire Sunday morning, and they, they closed it all up before they went to church. But there was a problem in the chimney, and their house burned down while they were at Sunday morning worship. It's much more distracting to think about whether the roast is burning. Their house burned down. And it was, a, it was a big scene, of course, fire trucks and people gathering to, to look at this, this sorrow, their, their lives, as it were, their possessions, at least, their memories burned and charred by flames and smoke. 
God warns us what is so good can be so bad. Proverbs 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire to his bosom? Can he take hot coals into his lap and not be burned? God makes the point that no one will escape unscathed who misuses the gift. Now, great gifts have great potential for good or for harm, don't they? Uh, Little children play with toy hammers and toy guns. They can't do a lot for good or for evil. But then big boys grow up and get real guns and real hammers and real power tools, which can do a lot, a lot of good, but can also do terrible things. And so it is with sexual intimacy. Great good can be used for great evil. And only a, a blind man would stand in the American culture or even anywhere in this world, I guess, at this point, and, and proclaim that we've been liberated from some puritanical repression. We're free now. I mean, if he would open his eyes, he's standing in the midst of charred rubble. Look at our culture. Homes torn apart, maladjusted children, people addicted to all kinds of perversities, getting weirder every day. And that's freedom. Sexual diseases, that's freedom. No, fire out of the fireplace is dangerous and harmful. It's like a bomb that explodes in four directions. First of all, it harms your own body and soul. The Bible says that sexual sin is a sin against your own body. Physical consequences are found in diseases and poverty. But worst of all, of course, is the spiritual destruction of a a heart and conscience wounded. I can't worship anymore. I can't pray anymore. Secondly, it hurts your spouse and children, right? If we're struggling against sexual sin, we ought to remind ourselves of the damage it would cause to the marriage or to the children. If we're single, we should think about the future. Do I want to tell my future wife about this? When I have to confess this sin to her before I marry her? Number three, it hurts the other immoral partner. Intimacy outside of marriage is called adultery if one of the partners is married. Intimacy outside of marriage if neither partner married is called fornication. But in neither case is that immorality of the two partners an act of love making. It's an act of love destroying. Because it's always selfish. Sexual intimacy outside of marriage is always selfish, and it hurts the other person. And it doesn't matter if the other person was willing. It doesn't matter if the other person gets paid for taking her clothes off for a camera. It's an image bearer of God whose life is being destroyed through misuse and abuse. Fourthly, sexual sin harms the Lord's name. We bear the name of the Lord. And when we engage in sin, then we dishonor God before the world. And we grieve him. And so the Lord warns, Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Proverbs 6, verse 26 says that by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. 
reduced to a crust of bread. That's not a very prosperous life. Maybe he goes broke or maybe his, his life is dried up and shriveled up. Proverbs 7 says at the end that her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So the consequences are great, God says. The third truth we must consider this morning is that Satan's disinformation campaign uses compelling messaging. Let's look at that thirdly. We're in a spiritual war. God makes that plain. We have to believe that. And so we have to think about how wars are fought. And a major part of war campaign is the propaganda, the message machine, controlling the message. And and Satan knows that, right? His chief weapon is the lie. He's the liar, and he murders through the lie. And, and anyone who's engaged in a war and who's not aware of the misinformation campaign is very naive, right? If you're fighting in Ukraine right now for, for the liberty of Ukraine and, and you're, you're believing everything that Putin says, then you're extremely naive. And if you're walking in this world and whatever the world tells you about sexual morality, you're taking it in because scientists and people with doctorates and degrees are saying these things. You're very naive. Satan is a liar. And there is a misinformation campaign going on by which Satan is telling us that sin is attractive, it's fulfilling, it's harmless. And that's why I think the Lord gives us Proverbs 7. I was asking myself, actually talking to my wife about that this morning, why, why does the Lord give us Proverbs 7 in which he dramatizes a scene of seduction? It's certainly not to arouse sinful desire. But I think it's to demystify and to uncover the enemy so that we might realize what's going on and be prepared to flee it. Now, John Kitchen, in his mentor uh, series commentary on Proverbs, does a masterful job, I think, of unpacking this scene. And so I, I like to read some quotes or paraphrase some of them for you here. But, but the scene begins at Proverbs 7, verse 6, right? This is Satan's misinformation campaign here. Proverbs 7, verse 6, the man, the father, looks out the window and he sees this young man. He is devoid of understanding, right? And he, he's, verse 8, passing along the street near her corner. Kitchen writes that he's nearing a danger point. Whether or not he intentionally headed toward her house or whether he stumbled unawares into her lair is not entirely clear. But the young man broke a fundamental principle of wisdom. Proverbs 5, verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Verse 9, it's in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Kitchen writes, the young man's fall begins at the transition point of light to night. When the sun is slipping behind the horizon, instead of wisely running from the temptation zone, he lingers and protracts his sojourn in the growing cover of night. The darkness feeds his rationalization that no one will know or discover his passion-driven intentions or actions. Verse 10, and behold, there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. He's a gullible youth, Kitchen writes. 
But there's a worldly, wise, and cunning woman who, unbeknownst to the young man, has him in her sights. He may be looking for her, but she already sees him. The woman comes out to meet the young man. She initiates the contact. He has put himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, no doubt, with some unwise and sinful intent. But she moves with intention and design. She is prepared for the encounter. She comes dressed as a harlot. Notice the text there. So she's dressed as a harlot, but, verse 10b, that she has a crafty heart. Kitchen writes, although her attire leaves little doubt about the intent, the designs of her heart are secretive. She is cunning of heart, or more literally, guarded in heart. Her plans are not broadcast. Her designs are not made clear. She teases. She tempts. She lures and allures. Her seductions are all the sweeter because of the secrets hinted at in her dress, but not yet revealed by her words. And then she's seen in verse 12, lurking at every corner. Kitchen writes, she lurks like a nocturnal predator seeking her prey. And then 13, verse 13, Behold, she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face and said to him, Kitchen writes, she made a sudden and bold move to spring her trap upon the smitten young man. She seizes him. She, leaving convention and propriety behind, seizes control of the relationship and takes it where he would never have the nerve to take it on his own initiative. With two fists full of his tunic, she kisses him. In a culture where the woman was not to let her hair hang loose or expose any part of her arm or ankle in public, this was no doubt a shock akin to a lightning strike. His personal, moral, and cultural limits were shattered in an instant. And if not for this rush of sensual arousal that shot through his body, he likely would have recoiled and run. But now he is stunned and helpless before her verbal seductions. She says in verse 14, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. Kitchen imagines inwardly a voice whispers to the mind of the young paralyzed man. Is it the voice of his mother, his father, the priest? Is it the recollection of a memorized portion of scripture? He imagines that in between verse 13 and 14, the man now is having second thoughts. His, his conscience is awakened. He's, he's sensing that this is wrong. But... With her words there, I have peace offerings. I've, I've paid my vows. I've been to the temple. Kitchen writes, to answer the call of conscience, she hypocritically assures him all is well with God. After all, she's been to the temple and has offered her peace offerings. In one fell swoop, she satisfied what remained of his scriptural scruples and at the same time urged him forward for time was wasting and the party could not wait. And Kitchen puts it in modern terms, justification of sin is only reinforced when it is done in the name of God. He will forgive me. After all, God wants you to be happy. If it feels so good, how could it be wrong? Surely this is God's will. Verse 15, she says, so I came out to meet you diligently and to seek your face, and I have found you. She tells him, that he has been in her thoughts all along and that she has been combing the streets looking just for him. <laughs> well, that takes the cake, right? You're so special. 
Oh, babe, it's just you. Only you can make me happy. Never mind the hundreds others that came before, the hundreds after that will follow. It's just you. You're so special. Isn't, isn't that really, I was thinking, you know, the billboards you see and the pictures in magazines as someone with less than proper clothing is, is in the photograph looking right into the camera so that when you see it looking right at you and saying to you, it's just you. It's just you and me. It's, it's you. You're so special. But of course, she's saying it to countless millions who are going to look at the picture. But you see Satan's campaign? You see what Satan does? You see what's going on? And then she clinches the cell with verse 19. For my, whole, my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. Kitchen writes, as the seductress closes her verbal appeal in this verse and the next, she does so by removing all fear of discovery. No one will ever have to know has been the foolish cry of many on their way to a destructive immoral relationship. So the nervous young man falls flat. Well, what a scene, huh? That the Lord would put this in his word for us and paint it so clearly. It's really an amazing thing to think how old this passage is. How many centuries ago this was written. And to recognize that, that since the fall into sin, we have all been called to fight the, the, the battle of sexual purity. It's been going on for centuries. And, and we bemoan our culture because indeed it is, it is so much more promiscuous now than it's ever been, right? It's, it's unashamed. But you can go back and read the Old Testament and Read about such cities as Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we know that our God has not changed in his righteous standard. He's not changed in his saving grace. He's always been sufficient for his people. And here the Lord goes to the trouble of, of showing us a scene of seduction. So that none of us will, will face the enemy unprepared. But we can all say, oh, I've seen this before. I know where this is going. Oh, I've heard about these lies before. And none of us have to be the naive and simple young man that just heads as an ox to the slaughter. But we can say, that's a lie. And that's a lie. And that's a lie. And that's a lie. As Satan paints it all up, so much enjoyment, no consequences. You'll be so fulfilled. You can say, no, no, no. And we may know that we must run. We must run. We must run away from it. Well, the fourth truth we must think of this morning is this, that none of us is above falling and none of us needs to fall. Number four, none of us is above falling. Proverbs 7, verse 26, For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. This immorality pictured as the seductress woman, well, she's a woman who's got a, a basement full of dead bodies. She has a cemetery out back. She takes one home after another and slays them. And they're strong men. King David was a strong man. King David wrote psalms of praise. King David dedicated his life to the Lord. King David fell deeply. We must be warned. We must tremble 
right? It must tremble. This is a trembling kind of thing. I've got a table saw, a table saw that I use just infrequently enough and have enough, I've had enough near misses and enough boards kicked back at me that I, every time I turn it on, I tremble just a bit. And I'm kind of glad I do, actually, because I think that's good. I should remember this, let this not be the day that I get my fingers cut off. I try to remind myself. But, you know, we, we get careless sometimes on the Internet or watching movies or letting song lyrics run through our soul or in our relationship maybe with a coworker, And we stop trembling. And we think, you know, I, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. It won't happen to me. And that's a very, very bad place to be. None of us are above falling. None of us. So we need to be warned that we're not immune to these things. But on the other hand, we have to know that falling isn't a necessity. Falling is not a necessity. We, by God's grace, can stand, and by his grace alone. Satan wants you to think it's a foregone conclusion. You may as well well give in now and enjoy it, because you're going to fall sooner or later. No one can escape. And God says, no, you can stand by my grace. Multitudes have proven faithful in marriage. Multitudes have remained pure until their wedding day. We're living in a depraved culture that makes immorality seem normal and inevitable. Medical doctors want to treat our children as if it's a definite yes. And God's word says, no, you don't need to go that way. God would grant us grace to avoid the trap. Remember that scene I mentioned, I don't know when it was, a couple weeks ago maybe, in 2 Kings where the king of Syria is making battle against Israel and the the traps that the king of Syria keeps setting for the king of Israel keep getting uncovered to the king of Israel and the king of Syria says to his people, who's who's telling what I'm doing? And they say, well, it's it's Elisha. He, He can tell what you're saying in your bedroom. Well, we have a God who can, can tell what Satan is whispering to his demons. And he's telling us this is what Satan's going to sound like. Satan's not going to come to you and say, oh, here's some great evil, I want to destroy you. Satan's going to come with the dripping lips of a seductress and say, oh, it's so beautiful and so wonderful, and it's just for you. And God is showing us this to demystify it and to, to pull off the camouflage so we can see the enemy and run and run. So take heed. Number five, all of us have transgressed and need restoring grace. Number five, if you're not convicted by this commandment yet, then either I'm not doing a very good job preaching or your heart is not very sensitive. Because none of us are without sin. Jesus told us plainly even to look at a woman to lust after her is to already have committed adultery with her in your heart. To take a second look is sin. To run that image over in your mind, sin. To fantasize about a greater emotional bond with somebody not your husband is sin. And where we have fallen and transgressed, it's not a cause for hopelessness, but a summons then 
to seek our Lord and his saving grace. The baptism form, you remember, it reminds us, baptism tells us that if we through weakness should fall into sin, we must not despair of God's mercy nor use our weakness as an excuse to keep sinning. Baptism is a seal and totally reliable witness that we have an eternal covenant with God. So our baptisms call us not to be hopeless. Say, oh, I fell. It's, it's hopeless for you. No, baptism says, come, be washed. You have a washing Savior. If you're single and have fallen, don't give it up hope. Don't say, well, I can never have a good marriage now. No, turn to Christ and be purified. Repent and seek grace. If you sin against your marriage partner and been unfaithful, don't say there's no hope now. I've, I've known three types of marriages that faced infidelity. I've known couples where infidelity was engaged without repentance and the marriage fell apart. I've known situations where there's been infidelity and then there was slow repentance with stops and starts and so rebuilding was slow because wife and children couldn't trust or couldn't know if they could trust. And then I've seen relationships where infidelity was followed with brokenness and weeping. And today they are happier than they've ever been before. The grace, the grace of the Lord, the God who gives us the book of Hosea, tells his prophet to marry a prostitute, and when she leaves him to go get her again, and says, for such is my love for my people. We as spiritually adulterous people with a Savior who takes us and takes us back. And so there's grace. Satan will always tell you there's no hope for you. If you've been immoral, if you've been addicted to pornography, if you have same-sex attraction, there's no hope for you, Satan says. Just give up all this church baloney. But the gospel says there's hope, not in you, but in Christ. You have a Savior who came to save from sin. And so there's a way back. Cry and weep and sorrow and repent and confess and cry out and be saved. God forgives through Christ those who come to him, and he gives grace for forgiveness. There's grace for husbands and wives to forgive each other. There's grace for brothers and sisters in Christ to forgive each other. There's grace to struggle against addictions and to struggle against unwanted attractions. But the key is that we humble ourselves before the Lord and come. So it is not loving when more and more Christians and more and more churches say, oh, it's not sin. And here the elders turn an eye to no-fault divorce. And, and here the elders turn a blind eye to, to young people fornicating. That's not loving. Because there's no salvation apart from repentance. We may not use the world's acceptance as our cover for living in sin. God will not grade on a curve. And if we're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we think we're going to stand before God, we'll be found naked. Christ calls us to repentance. Every single one of us. 
And every one of us needs repentance before the seventh commandment. We have all sinned. But in Christ, there's also the power to live a new life. Finally, or number six, true freedom is found in obeying Christ's law. What does Proverbs say over and over? The father's pleading with the son, wrap these laws around your heart and mind and neck and they'll keep you, they'll preserve you. He wants the son to have Proverbs chapter 5, the husband and wife rejoicing together. God is telling us in his word that we're not going to find greater fulfillment outside of God's law. And nothing is so wonderful as a clean conscience before God. To be able to come and worship and pray to God and know. Parents, we must teach and instruct our children and not leave that to the media. We must teach our children. We must guard them. Young people, young adults, you've got to get radical. Jesus said, pluck out an eye, cut off a hand. You can live without the internet. You can't live without sexual purity. You can live without time alone with a boyfriend or girlfriend. You can't live without sexual purity. Husbands and wives, keep the marriage warm, right? Stay tender and affectionate. Throw out everything that drives a wedge. Deal with hurts quickly. Single people, the world will tell you that you have to have some outlet for these sexual desires or you're going to, you're going to harm yourself. It's going to wreck yourself. God says no. There's a way. Though you may be a young person with a great deal of sexual desire, you may feel like you're going to explode. God says there's grace to walk with the Lord, to rechannel that energy now for something else and to pray for the spouse to come. And for those waiting for a marriage partner, says, I don't know if I can wait another, another year. Well, don't put it in those terms. You just wait today. And there's grace for today. And then tomorrow you pray for more grace. And you wait and you pray for that spouse. And the next day, and the Lord will be there every day. But in the path of the law of the Lord, we find true freedom. For those of you dating... Purity matters to your God. And the seventh commandment is not just some line that's right there at the moment of sexual intercourse. The seventh commandment applies to a whole bunch of things that come before that. God wants relationships that are pure from beginning to end. And even where we as parents have not done a good job or a perfect job, God's law to you abides. Purity, holiness. But finally this morning, number seven, marital intimacy points ahead to something greater. Why is God so jealous about marriage and and sexuality? Because in the end, what does Ephesians 5 says? It's all pointing to something else. Marriage is temporary, Jesus teaches. But the thing that marriage and sexual intimacy points to is something eternal, and that's Christ with his church. Christ the groom, the church the bride... And a wedding day that's coming. And if you think marriage is great and you think intimacy in marriage is wonderful, God's saying there's something that will thrill your soul. It will make this look like 
so little in comparison. And so if you die without ever marrying, you haven't missed the ultimate thing. You're not less than human. Jesus Christ never married, never engaged in sexual intercourse, and is the most human human there's ever been. Because you see, in the end, the main thing, the great thing, the ultimate thing, the eternal thing, is the glorious union of Christ with his bride, the church. And so the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let us all together set our eyes there at the coming of our Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your word, and we praise you for the grace of our Lord Jesus, without which we'd be the most hopeless and miserable people this morning. We thank you that in Christ there is forgiveness, there is a washing. We thank you that he bore our guilt and our shame. We thank you that the gift of marriage and intimacy are returned to us, restored by his precious blood. And oh God, you know how we need your help. We face a bombardment of Satan's lies and false messages. And our own hearts often cooperate with him. But we pray, God, for your rescue. Where we have been careless, awaken us. Where we have been immoral, we pray, convict us and give us repentance. Where we have stood strong, keep us standing. Where we are weak, make us strong. We pray, Lord, you bless the marriages of your people and that you would hedge them from all of Satan's ploys and from our own deviousness. We pray, Lord, for our children, our young people and young adults, that you will guard them and keep them, that you provide husbands and wives of godliness according to your will, that you will grant hearts of purity and love for the Savior. And we pray you be greatly glorified as your church looks different from the world, a holy people, So hear our prayer, God, in Jesus' name, amen.